Amen. Two, and uh, you're going to notice in your handout there is a uh, insert there, or rather in your bullets, and there's a handout and inserts. And so I want to encourage you to pull that out and encourage you guys to take some notes this morning if the Lord leads you that way. And uh, we'll be looking at this morning, uh, the title of the message is The Day After Christmas. And now, uh, my son so eloquently pointed out to me while we were, uh, before we dismissed the kids at junior church, he said, he leaned over and he kind of tapped me on the shoulder, he said, that was a few days ago. The day after Christmas has already happened. And so I'm so thankful for some critique and some criticism from my 10-year-old keeping me on points. Um, obviously, it is not the day after Christmas, but the point of the message this morning is going to be, how do we respond in the days following Christmas? What are some things that we can do, some practical after Christmas tips that we can give you to help all of us as followers of Christ to continue in a season of joyfulness and thanksgiving, as even though now Christmas is behind us, how do we continue to look forward in that regard? And I'm sure some of you had a great time last Monday. Um, many of you had a great Christmas, had a great week, uh, just everything was awesome. Uh, maybe for some of you, uh, I just actually talked to somebody just before I came up here uh, that said that they cannot wait for 2017 to be over uh, because it has not been a good year and they are just done with 2017. And so wherever you are on the spectrum of that kind of a situation, whether, whether you're, man, you just had the best week of your life and maybe some of you still have a family Christmas thing to go to. You still got one or two more things to do. Uh, maybe for most of us, Christmas is kind of done. We've already opened all the presents, uh, even the great presents like those glasses. And we've gotten all those great things and it's been a great week. But for some of us, like I said, it's kind of a, man, we're kind of glad it's over because now we're kind of just like, done with it. And we're kind of back to this normal way of thinking, normal way of living, kind of just, you know, what's next and not really a lot of joy in our hearts. And I came across a poem from Chuck Swindoll, and I think this is how some of us may feel following Christmas. And so I wanted to read this to you this morning and kind of give you a, a kind of a paradigm of where we're going to be working and where we're going to be thinking this morning. So this is what Chuck Swindoll wrote in his poem, "'Twas the Day After Christmas." "'Twas the Day After Christmas." Chuck says this, "'Twas the day after Christmas when all through the place there were arguments and depressions. Even mom had a long face. You can laugh if it all relates to anything you've gone through. It's okay. The stockings hung empty and the house was a mess. The new clothes didn't fit and dad was under stress. The family was irritable and the children no one could please because the instructions for the swing set were written in Chinese. The bells no longer jingle and no carolers came around. The sink was stacked with dishes and the tree had turned brown. The stores were full of people returning things that fizzle and fail. And the shoppers were discouraged because everything they bought was half price on sale. Towards the day after Christmas, the spirit of joy had disappeared. The only hope in the horizon was 12 bowl games in the new year. Now, some of you may relate to this poem and you read some of these things. And let me just tell you, we've already experienced a couple of these things in the last week. Uh, the boys got some money for Christmas, so we took them to buy some things for Christmas with our money, and I felt so bad for Josiah. We go to Toys R Us, and we buy this army helmet thing, and he puts it on, and within, I don't know, Sandra, what, maybe 10 minutes? 10 minutes! He went to use the little thing on the side, and it snaps right off in his hand. It wasn't the highest quality toy, let's just put it that way. And the look on his face. You guys, parents know what I'm talking about, right? The new toy has broken and Toys R Us is 45 minutes away. And it's like 7 o'clock at night, 6 o'clock at night. So we were just like, you know what, buddy? We'll take care of it. We'll return it. Go from there. So he got a different toy that he loves even more. But the point is, man, when those things happen, it can really rob the joy of the season. And so maybe you're here and that's kind of you. You're kind of just like, oh, just kind of this ho-hum mentality. And you're kind of just waiting to get the year over with. Maybe when the weather's like this outside, it's just hard to get motivated. It's hard to be excited about anything. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to talk about how can we allow the Christmas season to not just end on December 26th, but to continue through the whole year. I do hope that there is some joy left, but we all can feel tired and relieved when Christmas is over. But however, the season of Christmas, the joy of the season must remain into the new year. And so let's take a look into Scripture and see how people responded the day after Christmas. Luke chapter 2 and verse 39. Luke chapter 2 and verse 39. How did the response, or what was the response rather in the days following Christmas? Look at 
Luke 2 and verse 39. And when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. And the child, this being Christ Jesus, and the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. I want to open in prayer this morning, and I want to pray that you would begin to allow God to continue to speak into your heart in whatever way he needs to this morning. Just give him that freedom and watch God speak and lead you this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We do thank you for this last week. All the family get-togethers and the, the, the giving of presents, the receiving of gifts, Lord, the joy, the fun, the food, the fellowship. Lord, many of us just enjoyed a great week. But even for those of us that had a great week and great joys, Lord, life can come on us very quickly. And here in just a few days, we're going to be back at normal. Back to work, kids back to school, everything goes back to kind of how it was. But I pray, Lord, that as we kind of get back into the normal routine, that it wouldn't become a rut that we find ourselves in. But even in the normal, even in the mundane, even in the the day in and the day out, that we would still find joy, that we would still look for ways to to express the love that you have for us and the love you have for for others in this world. So, Father, as we talk today about how do we respond following the birth of Christ, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds that you would help us to walk through these six practical tips and try to see where we can best allow you to work in us. Where do we need to maybe step up and step out? Where do we need to allow you control and freedom in our lives so that we surrender those areas to you? Father, whatever you're doing and however you're leading, I pray that first and foremost, we would respond to you with an open heart. That we would come in here today, Lord, not to experience just another Sunday, Lord, I'm so fearful for Christians all around this nation that are just gathering together in a building and singing some songs and putting some money in a plate and just calling it good. Lord, I pray that we would allow you to engage us. We pray, Holy Spirit, that the, that the word of God would, would invoke something in us, that it would draw from us a response, a reaction, not just a simple head nod or an amen or a just a a fleeting emotion that we experience in church, but a true response that results in action when we leave this place. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for the celebrations. I pray that all of us had a great time of joy. I pray that we all enjoyed fellowship and food and family and just the festivities. Because really, Lord, as we've already said multiple times, who really can celebrate Christmas better than those that know Christ? We don't need all the things the world offers to enjoy this holiday. We have the very presence of the one that came 2,000 years ago. And I pray that we would continue to celebrate and may the joy continue into the new year. Father, we thank you for all that you're doing and have done and will do in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here in Luke, we see that this tells us that everyone returned back home. They all kind of went back home and kind of got back to work, got back to their lives, got back to just normal It says, when they had performed all the things according to the law of the Lord, they returned in Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. Verse 40. What a simple verse, but one that drives us crazy, doesn't it? Did you ever read verse 40 and say, man, Lord, I just want a little bit more. I just want to know a little bit more. Because the next time we read of Christ, as he's a a young boy in the temple, we kind of skip a lot of years. And man, what does it mean when he says, the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And what was Jesus like as a five-year-old, as a six-year-old? What happened in that one verse? And it kind of, if we're not careful, can drive us kind of crazy. But I want to let you know, we know all we need to know. And the key in this verse, there's a couple keys here that we need to understand. It says the child grew. That means that Jesus as a human being, the man Christ, grew as any child would. And he grew strong in the spirits. As he grew, the Spirit of God grew in him. Filled with wisdom. I believe that Jesus had all wisdom as God, but also grew in wisdom as the God-man. And then the last part of that verse is so powerful. And the grace of God was upon him. Man, what an amazing testimony of the person of Christ. But when you read that verse, really what it's saying is everybody just kind of went back to normal. And so here in just a couple days, we're going to do that. Right? The kids are going to go back to school. Some of you are really excited about that. 
No moms in here would at all be joyful of kids going back to school. No, never. You love having your kids around the house all the time. All of them at the same time. Because they never fight, right? They never, you know, fight over that one Lego that you have 50 million of them and they got to fight over the one. They never fight over things like, well, who gets to pick the next show we get to watch? That never happens in your house. I know. My family's kind of weird. That stuff happens often. But we go through these things and we go into normal. And all of a sudden what will happen is a couple weeks from now, you'll be so back to normal, you won't even really be thinking about what you experienced this week. I have so many people that tell us our Christmas Eve service, they just love our Christmas Eve service. And again, last Sunday night, man, the praise team, all the singers, the vocalists, all the musicians, everyone did a tremendous, tremendous job. But so many people come to that service and say, oh man, I just, I love the atmosphere of the Christmas Eve service. Just kind of breaking away from the normal and just spending that quiet time with the Lord, that intimate time with the Lord. And just, man, it's such a worshipful thing. The crazy thing is you can experience that every single day. You can spend time with him every day and in his presence every day. Every single time you gather with God's people, you can experience true worship with the body of Christ. It doesn't have to be on December 24th with candlelight that we experience Christ in a, in a way that we are just blown away by. So why is it then that when we get back into the normal that things just kind of become mundane? Even church, gathering together before the Spirit of God with the Word of God, and He begins to speak into our hearts. Some people, I know this is hard to believe, some Christians are bored by church. Isn't that crazy? Isn't it insane to think that a person who's been saved and redeemed by the person of Christ can actually come to his house and his church and his spirit be moving, and you feel bored? Isn't that weird? I don't know about you, that's weird to me. That's so crazy to me. I remember thinking when I was in high school, in, ju in, in, in junior year of high school, I was just saved, and I was sitting in Sunday school, and all these teens are just like, this story again, right? Because it was like Moses, or it was about David and Goliath. And I remember thinking it was the most amazing things I'd ever heard in my life. I couldn't believe I would be reading through scriptures, and I'm like, you're kidding me. God did that? You read the stories of David and all these great battles and victories and all these things, and you're just blown away by it. And I look around at these kids that grew up in church, and they're just like, <sighs> heard this a thousand times. And it's so evident by their lifestyle, right? It's so obvious how much they've been exposed to the Word of God by how they live for Christ, right? And do you get what I'm saying here? We've got to be so careful because apathy and that mundane routine can come on so quickly, and we don't even realize it. I'm always amazed at how much churches will invest in the church to keep Christians coming to their church. That will forever boggle my human mind. I can never understand that. We're not talking about reaching unsafe people who don't know Christ and doing things to reach them and bring them in. We're talking about churches that invest thousands of dollars into their church so Christians who know Jesus will keep coming to their church. There is something seriously wrong in our church culture when that's our mindset and motivation is, I just want to keep all the Christians coming. And so how do we guard against that? How do we guard against this, this apathy that can sneak in and this mindset of getting back into the normal? Because listen, when we go through Christmas week, I don't know about you, but I love it. Man, I love the decorations. I love the lights. I love everything. Just the other night, we were sitting in our living room, and my wife does a tremendous job with doing the decorations and stuff. She's awesome at it. And we were sitting there, and the TV was off, and the kids were in bed, and it was just this quiet night, and there was the Christmas lights all on, and we were just sitting there, and she was reading, and I was just sitting there because, well, you know, um, I'm not a big reader sometimes at home. But anyway, I was just sitting there, and it was cool. I was just kind of taking it all in. You ever do this? Just kind of take in that moment? And just the quiet and the stillness and the lights and just, there's something so cool about that. Can anybody relate to what I'm talking about? Anybody on the same page as me? Okay. Praise the Lord. We're awake. We're good. We're moving. And then guess what? Here in a couple of days, it's all going to come down. And we're going to put it all away. And we're going to box it all up and put all the furniture back to how it was. And then in a couple of weeks, it's going to be, we're just going to be back to what? Man, what happens? We start feeling different, don't we? We, start our, our, we don't have that same joy all of a sudden. And little things start bugging us that they didn't bug us during Christmas. Maybe they did. <laughs> then this is for you. This message is for you, okay? 
was the day after Christmas, right? Yeah. So I'm going to walk through some real quick six practical tips for after Christmas. Six tips that we can kind of look through because after the event of Christmas and we all go back to our normal lives, how are we going to be carrying the power of the truth of Christmas with us into 2018? So this isn't really a New Year's message. This isn't really a, I guess it's kind of a mix of all those things. But I just want you to think about how am I going to carry the truth of Christmas into the coming year? And so six things to do after Christmas. You guys got your notes there, so I encourage you to jot some things down. The first thing I want you to look at is clean the house. Clean the house. Go over to Matthew chapter 5. These points are going to have kind of relation to physical illustrations that we do after Christmas. I don't know about you, but about a half hour, 45 minutes after the presents are opened, it's just chaos. You guys know what I'm saying? It's nuts. There's just boxes and wrapping paper and everything. Does anybody else store up their wrapping paper and have a wrapping paper fight after the presents are open? Does anyone else do this? Awesome. Okay, yeah. Listen. I just made your Christmas 10 times better next year, okay? That's what I did. Next year, everybody gather up all your little paper, and then as soon as it's over, you just start pelting each other with wrapping paper. It's great. I'm telling you, your kids will love it. Your grandkids will love it, okay? If you're just you and your husband and you're kind of empty nesters, do it to each other. No one, it'll be great. Just start pelting each other with paper. Now, don't get mean and ball it up real tight. That's kind of hurts, okay? And make sure the edges, don't throw the boxes at each other, okay? That's getting a little dirty. Chris Fox would do that because she throws core cobs at people. She just, that's how she does. We're all having fun throwing, hey, and here comes a corn cob. And it's Chris Fox launching it from the field like a grenade, right? Do that next year. I'm telling you. Just, here's why I say that. Because so many people, what do they do when they see all the paper? Oh, i got to pick it all up. Yeah, you do. But, man, just have as much fun with it while you can. You spend all the time buying it and wrapping it. Have as much fun as possible with it. But you got to, there's a time, a couple of days after Christmas, you got to what? you got to clean the house. All the dishes are stacked up because nobody wants to do dishes, right? Nobody wants to empty the dishwasher on Christmas Day. Nobody wants to do that. So all this stuff happens. So we got to clean the house. we got to spend some time doing this. Well, I believe spiritually... We need to do some house cleaning as well. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8. Part of the Beatitudes here, Matthew 5, 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This purity of heart is an idea that we are allowing Christ, by the working of the Holy Spirit, to purify our hearts. Now, in Christ, he has given us a new mind, and he's changed our hearts. He's transforming our hearts. But this purification is not something that happens instantaneously. Our hearts still wrestle with things. We still have to have this time of purification where the Lord is cleaning us, if you will. And the thing is, when we clean the house, it's really not us cleaning it. It's him cleaning our hearts. We need to ask God to do for us what David asked God to do for him, to search me and to try me, to see if there be any wicked way in me. Just as life gets busy around Christmas and all the chaos of the season and the house can get out of hand quick, so can our lives. We start living on autopilot and stop taking the time to do personal inventory. Let's just be real for a minute. Every single person in this room that knows Christ, you will be tempted at some point in the coming week to live on autopilot. That's where you just get up and you just go and you do all the normal and you don't stop to think about what you're doing until the end of the day. Then you realize, oh man, I kind of blurred through this whole day. Did I invest in anyone's life today? Did I share Christ with anyone today? Did I pray for anyone today? Did I go out of my way to serve someone today? And if you're not careful, autopilot takes over and we just kind of go. So how do we avoid that? We start our day off by saying, God, would you evaluate my heart? Would you check me? Would you try me? I don't always remember to do it, but one thing that, that I always try to do before I, I share a message with you is I try to take a quick moment at least outside of any other prayer time, and just pray that exact prayer. Lord, would you search me and try me and see if there be any wicked way in me? Because I'm not up here just to talk to you about some things. Man, this is serious stuff. This is God's word we're talking about. And we need to allow him to purify our hearts, to try us and to clean our house, if you will. If Christmas is going to impact us beyond the 25th, it starts with some serious house cleaning. So as you clean your physical house after Christmas, don't forget to allow the Holy Spirit to clean your spiritual house as well. So, number one, we, we clean the house. Number two, the second thing we do after Christmas is we take down the tree, we keep the lights on. We take down the tree and we keep the lights on. 
Matthew, you're already there in Matthew chapter 5. Look at verse 14. Familiar passage, familiar verses. But I want it to kind of speak to us this morning. Verse 14, we are the lights of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it gives light unto all that are in the house. Verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. This idea of taking down the tree and keeping on the lights. Now, as you take down the real tree and spend the next six months, if it's a real tree, vacuuming up pine needles, right? Can anybody testify? Anybody ever have pine needles that just can't get up? Yeah. Okay, you know how you solve that? You buy a fake one, okay? Even then you get some needles, but it takes a little longer for them to fall off, okay? We had a tree. Uh, was it last Christmas we bought that tree? Two Christmases ago? Something like that. We bought a new fake tree. Um, the tree before that we bought when we were first married. So it was about 10 years old. And um, no joke, we would pull it out of the box, and I think there was more needles in the box than on the tree at the last couple of years. And as you're putting it up, needles are falling. I'm like, what's the point of this? Like, this is getting ridiculous. It looks like Charlie Brown's Christmas tree over here. It's silly. But as you're doing that, as you're taking down the real tree, and you're packing everything up, I don't really expect you to leave your actual lights on. Okay? Now, some of you leave your lights up all year round. Okay? That's cool. Whatever. It's your thing. I don't judge. Okay? It's a little redneck, but it's cool. Whatever. I mean, <laughs> you do what you got to do. I mean, hey. Now, I'll tell you the truth, though. When it's cold like it is right now, I'm not taking my lights down until it warms up. You know what I'm saying? Like, when it's like 50, the lights are coming down. So if that's May, hey, praise the Lord. Whatever. It is what it is. Okay? But when we're thinking about this idea of taking the tree down and taking down the decorations down, for some of us, this is, again, it's just an illustration. Okay? For those of you that really do leave your lights up all year, see me after service. We'll pray about that. But I want you to realize the light that is in you, that should shine on well beyond the 25th. Well beyond the week of Christmas. Man, I'm so, I love social media around Christmas. Everybody's got the Christmas spirit, right? Everybody's sharing these beautiful posts and these stories about giving and all this. And it's great. But let that light continue to shine January, February, all the way through to summer, fall. I mean, don't let it be just something we allow to shine out of us around Christmas. Jesus said that we have a light that is shining in us in this spiritual dark world. We have a light that we're bringing to this world. So what is the answer for reaching this spiritually dark world? We don't amass all the lights in one place and keep them there forever. Because that might make this area really bright, but we're ignoring all this other darkness. So what do we do? How do we effectively change the world spiritually? Well, we take our individual lights and we go out into the world. And you go out into the world. And you go out into the world. And as you go out, and all these lights are spreading all over the world. Guess what happens? All of a sudden, it becomes a little bit brighter in the world. The light of Christ is shown to a little bit more of the world. A few more people get to see the light of Christ in you. So we don't amass them all together and keep them there. We spread them out. We go out into the world, into our lives, and we allow the light of Christ to shine out of us. Jesus also said that our light is connected to our, what? Good works. He says it in the passage. He says, there is a, you are a light. You can't hide your light, but it should shine like a city on a hill. Verse 16, let your light so shine before men. So as your light is shining, what are they going to see? Your good works. See, Jesus is very specific here. He's saying your light is not just this spiritual light where you say, I'll pray for you. That's part of it. But there's also this connection of good works, meaning we serve one another. We honor Christ through our actions, through our words, through our lifestyles. We, we honor him through our deeds. And as we're serving each other and we're loving each other, our light is shining. And what's the result? What's the natural byproduct of that? What does it say in verse 16? So that they may see your good works and glorify you because you're an amazing Christian. That they see your good works that you could glorify yourself and tell everybody about how awesome you are and all the good things you do. No. So they can see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And is there any greater joy for a follower of Christ to know that your actions, which Christ is doing through you anyway, actually brings glory to your Father? I mean, can you think of a greater joy that you do this simple deed and that person ends up glorifying God, maybe even receiving Christ from that? Man, there's so much joy in that. So we take the tree down, but we leave and we keep the lights on. Number three, as we continue to walk through this, 
Number three, we walk away from the manger, but we stay in awe. We walk away from the manger, but we stay in awe. Go back to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 and verse 20. We walk away from the manger, but we stay in awe. Luke 2 and verse 20. Look what he says here. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. As we, like the shepherds did 2,000 years ago, go back into our normal lives this coming week, back to the routine, back to the normal, the kids back to school, we must remember the very awe of Christ's birth. Now, I don't know what that looks like for you. Let's just be honest for a minute. I don't know what the awe of Christ's birth looks like for you. We're not all emotional people. Well, I take that back. We are all emotional people. We're not all outwardly emotional people. Okay? Some of us are inwardly emotional. We're very emotional, but we keep it in. Some of us are more expressive. We let it out. So for some of you, the awe of Christ's birth, when you think about the things of Christ and what he did in coming 2,000 years ago and being born in that manger, or being born in that uh, stable and laid in that manger, I mean, it actually brings tears to your eyes. It actually softens your heart and brings this warmth to you. Some of us, we see that and we tend to dwell more on it intellectually. We think on it. We reflect over it. We don't outwardly express emotion, but it does give us joy. We're not crying outwardly, but man, there's this somber reality that in our minds we know I had no hope of salvation without that baby Christ. So whatever that looks like for you, you allow that to radiate through your life in the coming year. You don't try to match somebody else's expression of their awe of Christ's birth. You don't try to be like someone else and, well, they got emotional at the altar, so I got to get emotional at the altar. No, no, no. You allow whatever God is building in you to be expressed. Here's the key. Don't let someone else stop that. Don't let someone else tell you, well, that's not how you're supposed to respond. That's not how it's supposed to look. You can't get excited like that in church. You can't get emotional like that in church. That's not, you know, religious. We got to be very professional in church and very, you know, astute and very serious. And no, we need to be in awe of his birth. And sometimes, I'm not going to lie, sometimes just thinking on that he came, seriously, just, destro- just wrecks my heart. It just breaks my heart to know that he would do all of that. And yet in my Christian life, I've denied him even the freedom to lead me at times. I've willingly known in my Christian life, I was supposed to say this to that person. And I rejected it because I didn't feel like it. And then I think about the fact that he came over 2,000 years ago for me. And I don't even always give him the time of day. And how does that not just, I don't know, that just wrecks me. Some of you, that doesn't do anything for, and here's why. Because you're so far into your apathetic state. You've jaded yourself so much to the things of Christ, you've stopped allowing the very presence of God to affect you. And you've put him in a box. You've allowed the hurts of other people or things that you've done or the way you've been treated to affect how you respond to the person of Christ who did nothing but come for you when you were unworthy of him even showing up. Man, we need to be in awe of Christ's birth. We need to be in awe of what he did for us, that he would even come. And I know we've dwelt on this the last few weeks about him coming, but I just can't get over it. The last month or so, I've just been blown away that he would even come. So we leave the manger. We walk away from the stage of of the decorations. We put the trees away, but we never cease to be in awe. And I'm promising you this, the minute the awe begins to wear off and that understanding of what he did starts to wear away, everything else starts to take its place and that's when your routine becomes a rut. And you'll find yourself on December 23rd next year sitting in a church service going, man, Lord, I wish I would have invested more. I wish I would have done more. I wish I would have given you more freedom. I wish I would have trusted you more. So how do we stop that from happening? We remain in awe. We continually worship him because he is solely worthy of all praise and all worship. We do not have to live at the manger to dwell in Christ's presence. That was the beauty in what Christ made available. It is not a location or a piece of furniture that contains his presence. You, by his grace, through his Holy Spirit, contain his very presence. 
That is what makes gathering with the church so powerful. Because we all have been experiencing him together in our own unique way. God designed. And then we come together to share. So let me ask you a question. Before we just move on to the next point, and sometimes again, we just kind of fall into what's the next point, what's the next thing, let's just move on. How are you right now in your spiritual life, how are you living in awe of the very fact that he came? How are you responding to him in your spiritual life in the fact that he even came? Does it dwell up something in you? Does it, does it man, does it, something happen inside of your heart and mind? And again, it's not just the outward emotion of, of tears or whatever. And does it radiate with you? Does it resonate in your mind that it actually affects how you live? The decisions you make, are they made in the reality of who Christ is and what he did for you? How are you, how am I living in awe of the birth of the Savior today? So we talked about a few things already. We've covered the idea that we need to clean the house. We've got to allow the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts and minds. We take down the tree, but we keep the lights on. We walk away from the manger, but we stay in awe. And last, or a couple more here before we finish. The next one, we re-gift what we have been given. We re-gift what we've been given. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We're not going to turn there for time's sake. Many of us know this. But Jesus said that we will be his witnesses. We will be his witnesses. I love that passage because he doesn't say there's a choice in the matter. He doesn't say, I want you to choose to be my witness. He says, if you're my disciple, you're my witness. You will be, he says, my witness. We treat it as though there's a choice, that we get to choose whether we'll be his witness or not in this world. That's not what he said. He said, no, no, no. As a follower of Christ, as a child of God, you will be my witness. And so my, my question is, are we living in what we're called to be? Are we allowing the Holy Spirit to use us as that witness? Are we going out? Are we re-giving this gift? Because the reality is we have all been given a gift that someone gave us, one that didn't, we didn't want to return because it was just kind of too inconvenient. So when we needed a gift in a hurry, there it was. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but many of us have gotten a gift and said, oh, thank you. <laughs> it's great. Love it. Mm, it's wonderful. And as soon as that person leaves that family get-together or you get home, you take it out of the box, and what do you do with it? You shove it in the closet, and you say, that's going to aunt so-and-so on her birthday, right? Can any, nobody can relate to this? Okay, I, we, I've done this. I, just no offense. If you've given me a gift and you see it, somebody else has the same gift, I probably re-gifted it, okay? I'm just kidding. I'm too careful to give it to people in church. You guys would catch on, okay? I'm just kidding. Many of us have done this. I remember when our boys were real little, we used to get tons of toys for, like, their birthdays when they were, like, like, two or three years old. And sometimes they'd get doubles. You guys know what I'm talking about? You get doubles of the same toy. And you're like, oh, man, I don't really want to give it, like, return it because it's kind of out of the way and you got to get the receipt and it's just crazy. So we would just put it in this box upstairs. And then, you know, a few months goes by and one of their little friends had a birthday. And, oh, look, a gift for little Jimmy down the road, okay? We wrap that baby up. There you go, Jimmy. Have fun, okay? We've all done this. Whether it was, again, a toy for the kids or, or something that you found was a great gift but you just didn't need or maybe even a labeler. Whatever it is, something that you received that you re-gift to someone else. And there's always this little bit of guilt, isn't there? Feel a little bit of guilt when you do this? You're like, hmm, kind of passing this off as though I bought this and I really didn't. Just don't say anything. That's what I've learned. Just, just here. Have a gift. Why do they need to know who, pay, who paid for it? Who gets the credit? What's the big deal? It's a gift. God bless you. Enjoy it, okay? We've all fallen into that trap. But listen, here's the reality. Jesus Christ is the gift that we can re-gift over and over and over again. And there's no guilt. There's no disappointment. We all can make disciples of someone else. We all can share Christ with someone else and see someone else come to know Christ as their Savior. Or at least encourage them to trust in Christ as their Savior. You're not responsible for the results. You're responsible for sharing. Maybe somebody that you know that knows Christ already but has never been discipled, never been kind of led in the basics of the Christian faith. And you get to come alongside them and encourage them. But here's the truth. Many of us have believed a lie about making disciples. Maybe you're here and you believe the lie that you can't make disciples because of 
And you fill in the blank with whatever you think it is. You don't know enough Bible. Man, if I just knew enough uh, more Bible, then I, would, then I would make disciples. If I was just farther down the road spiritually, then I would share Christ. If I was a, a better Christian or a better dad or a better mom, if I was just a stronger Christian, if I just knew more, then I would share Christ. Those are all lies. If you know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you can make disciples for Christ, period. Take it one step farther. You, it's not just that you can, you're commanded to. Why do we do this? We think, oh man, God, you can't use me to make disciples. Are you kidding me? Study the life of the disciples in the Gospels. They were a bunch of failures, nobodies, made tons of mistakes. And yet God used them to lay the foundation of the church, which has existed for 2,000 years. Let me think about this this way. What if everyone in this room made one disciple this coming year? Think about that for a moment. What if every person in this room made one disciple? That's just one person that you encouraged in the Lord. You led to a deeper walk with the Lord. Maybe they already know Christ, so you're kind of working with them that way. Maybe you met somebody who doesn't even know Christ. And through the next year, you led them to Christ. They followed the Lord in believers' baptism. And you begin to disciple them in things like prayer and Bible study. Teaching them and training them how to know Christ personally, to walk with Christ. And at this time next year, guess what the result would be? We would have double the attendance we have right now. And all you did was make one disciple. Just one. And you might think, oh, I've heard this before. It's amazing. We've heard this before. But yet so few churches churches actually do it. Because again, you believe the lie. I can't make a disciple. Who am I? Who are you? You are a son and daughter of God. That's who you are. You are saved and redeemed, and you have the knowledge of eternal life. Who are you to make a disciple? Who else is going to make disciples? So we go out to the world, and we re-gift what we've been given, the glorious truth of the gospel. Stop letting the enemy, stop letting your flesh, stop letting other Christians. Man, I love it when other Christians discourage Christians from making disciples. That's ridiculous. Well, I don't know, brother. I mean, you know, I don't know if you can really share your faith. Here, take this 16-week program on how to share your faith. Once you do this class, maybe then you can share your faith. I'm all for education. I'm all for classes. But you know the best way to share Christ is you sit down with someone and open the Word of God and say, let me tell you what God has shown me. Let me just show you how he saved me and redeemed me. You want to teach someone to pray? You want to show someone how to pray? Do you know how the best way to teach someone to pray is? I mean, I can do a sermon on it. We can have classes on it on Wednesday night. We can teach through the tactics of prayer, the Bible study on what prayer is and how to pray. But man, isn't it even a little more effective for you to come alongside someone and say, let me just show you how I pray. But what's the catch in that? What do we have to be doing as Christians if that's the model? We have to know how to study the Word of God. We have to be praying. And isn't that God to trick us like that? To mess with us? To get us to pray by telling us to teach others to pray? How dare he? Maybe that's the plan. Maybe that's, those of you that are like, I don't know enough of the Bible. Maybe the way you're going to know more about the Bible is opening it up with someone else and studying it together. Maybe that's how you're going to grow in your Bible study. To me, it's just, it's so amazing that we get to make disciples, to share the gift we've been given. So we re-gift what we've been given. Also, number five, I believe, as we quickly go through here, we take time to relax. We take time to relax. Go over to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2 and verse 27. The day after Christmas, we need to take time to relax. Mark 2 and verse 27. Listen to what Jesus says here. And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. You might say, what in the world does that have to do with relaxing? Jesus here makes a point in Scripture, and we don't want him to go into all the details of it, but they were basically challenging him because the disciples were doing works on the Sabbath day, doing things that they had traditionally said you couldn't do. 
And they were critiquing and criticizing Jesus. Again, I've said this before. If you're going to challenge somebody, don't challenge Jesus. That's just a great rule in life. Like, don't challenge Jesus because odds are he's right. Right? He knows what he's doing here. So the Pharisees are challenging Jesus and they're saying, hey, your disciples are doing this and they're doing that. And what's going on here? It's not lawful to do these things. And Jesus says in verse 27 something that's so profound. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. What does that tell us? That Jesus didn't create man and the law was already in place. Jesus is demonstrating the Sabbath day, the day of rest, was meant for man as a blessing to mankind. To give man a break, a day of rest, a day of relaxation. And so many of us, man, we go and we go and we go and we go and we go. We fill up our calendars. We do all this stuff. And it's great to have goals and aspirations. It's great to be busy and to do what God is calling you to do. But if you're not careful, if you don't take time to slow down and relax, you're going to burn yourself out and do nobody any good. Jesus says, hey, I created. We, God, the God had created a very day for man to rest. Jesus here is claiming that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, which was a day set aside by the Jewish people as a day of rest in remembrance of God's seventh day of rest in creation. The Jews had created so many laws and traditions surrounding the Sabbath day that it turned into a weight on the people's shoulders. It became a burden to the people, the law of the Sabbath, instead of being a blessing to them as a day of rest. Isn't this how we are as people, by the way? We take something that God's given to us as a blessing and we pervert it and we twist it and we mess it up and we turn it into a burden on our shoulders. And so here's what I want to encourage you with. Take time to relax. Take time to just chill out and just take a break. To enjoy a day of just just rest and just recreation and just do something kind of just fine or just kind of relax and just take it easy. If we're not careful, as we get into January and the new year is upon us, more and more things will pull at our time and we'll find ourselves saying things like, I have no time. I just can't relax. Jesus' point here is that God created the law of the Sabbath day for mankind. God knew men would need a day of rest, so I encourage you to take it easy and maybe even take a nap today. I know that's crazy. Take a nap today. Your pastor says, take a nap today. I'm going to give you a spiritual reference for that. Mark it down. Mark 4.38. Mark 4.38. Jesus took naps. Be like Jesus. Take a nap today. Okay? Now, quick point of confusion. Many people think that today is the Sabbath day. Some Christians even believe that today is the Sabbath day. Today is not the Sabbath day. Today is considered the Lord's day. The first day of the week is the Lord's day. Friday at sundown to Saturday at sundown is considered the Sabbath day, the seventh day. Quick point as well. If God said, here's a principle, a law based on the seventh day of creation, that he rested on the seventh day, not because he needed to, but because he was finished, the work was done, then what does that tell us about the creation accounts? If they put in the law on the seventh day, we have to rest because Jesus rested on the seventh day. Then was that seventh day 7,000 years, 7 million years, 7 billion years? Or maybe was it just a literal 24-hour day since they created a whole system of thinking around this? It seems to me the Jews believe that it was a literal day. It seems to me God believes it's a literal day. So just a side point there. The point is this day of rest is still in principle applied to us today because we still need Rest. So take a nap today. That's what you need to write down there. Last one. Sixth point, and then we're going to have a time of prayer and time of invitation. Sixth thing to do in the days following Christmas. We ponder the past, but we look ahead. Philippians 3, verse 13. Now, we're going to get into this more next week, talking about the coming year and and all the things I believe God has for our church uh, collectively for you as individuals, for us as a church. Um, Man, it's been amazing to pray about and think about the coming year. And I'll tell you guys next week, there's a verse that God has just been really hitting me with lately that I believe is kind of going to be our model verse for 2018. I believe it's something we're going to kind of latch on to and watch God do great things. And so we ponder the past, but we look ahead to the future. Philippians 3 and verse 13. 
Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth into those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul tells us that he looks to the past to learn from it, but he realizes he isn't living in the past. He's living in the present. We must remember the tremendous blessing that is and was the birth of Christ. However, we cannot think that all God wants to do in this world happened in the past. Isn't that a trap we can fall into easily? We start thinking that everything that God wants to do in the world has already happened. That he moved so great in the past years that how could he possibly do more in the future? And we ponder the past, we reflect on it, we learn from it, we gain from it. We're in awe of it, as we've already said, but we look ahead because I believe God has something in store that you can't even imagine. And it's not about you, it's not about me, it's about him and who he is. Paul says, man, I forget those things that are behind, and I look forward to the things that are currently happening or will happen in the future. The truth is, God is currently working in this present world, accomplishing his global purpose and plan. A plan that began thousands of years ago with a man named Abraham. And the goal was and is to reach the nations with the good news of salvation in Christ. We look to the past to see the track record of our God. And he is an amazing God. Amen. When you look back to the past, reflect over all the ways that God has shown you that he is God. And be in awe. Be in amazement of him. But we don't just look back to see that he was an amazing God. We look forward expecting him to be an even greater God. Because not that he changes but our understanding of him will change. So, how are you doing in the days after Christmas? What, if any, of these six things do you need to put into practice? I truly pray that you will allow the gift of Christmas to go with you into your everyday life as you, by his grace, share that gift with others. And so here's what I want you to do before we pray. I want to give you a little bit of application time this morning. Look back at the six things if you took notes. If you're sitting next to someone that took notes, odds are if you're a man, your wife took the notes because you want to read them later. It's cool. I get it. Look back at her notes. And I want you to practically pick one of these six things. Just pick one of them and say, okay, Lord, help me this week to do this, to put this into practice. So what's it going to be? What's the one thing? Don't say, Lord, I'm going to do all six this week because you'll fail. (laughs) Lord, help me just to do one. Now, many of the guys in here think, I got you. I'm going to take a nap today. (laughs) Check. Got that one done. Okay, the nap, the nap's a good one. If you're picking the nap, let's go a step farther, okay? Take it a little deeper. How about actually saying, okay, Lord, help me to take a day in the coming year of rest, and some of you guys are so goal-oriented, you're just, I mean, you put a goal before you and you just accomplish it. And that's awesome. But do you know one of the faults in a goal-oriented person? Is they forget people live around them. They forget they're in relationships with other people. And they get so focused on the goal, it's almost like, hey, I don't have time for you. I don't have time for you. I have this goal. And it's great to have goals, but you also need people. <laughs> and some of you are people people. You're kind of like more about the relationships. That's great. But maybe you need to set some goals. Lord, help me to re-gift this gift this week to someone, anyone, one person. Help me to build that relationship with that person. Help me to take a day to relax. Help me to be in awe of what you've done for me. Help me to clean my house today. So what is this one of the six things you're going to do? And here's what we're going to do. We're going to stand in just a moment. We're going to have an invitation. The praise band's going to come and we're going to sing and it's going to be great. We're going to worship. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to come in just a moment. I want you to bend your knee at this altar, and I want you to say, God, here's the thing I'm going to ask by your grace you would allow me to do this week. And I want you to respond. I don't usually ask you guys to come, but I want you, I really want you, if you're making that decision today, I want you to physically come forward and bend a knee. Put action to your faith. Say, God, I'm going to step out, and I'm going to bend a knee, and I'm going to say, God, would you allow me the grace to do this one thing this week? Whatever it is, whatever God is leading you to do, Would you respond to him this morning? Would you pray with me as we ask the Lord to speak through this time of invitation? Would you bow your heads? Heavenly Father, Lord, as we respond to you this morning, we pray that we do not respond to a person, to a song, 
We don't respond because somebody else is moving. We respond because we genuinely are asking that we would put into practice one of these six things. And maybe, Lord, there's somebody here that has something on their heart that has nothing to do with these six things. Nothing to do with the message. Nothing to do with, per se, what we talked about today. And Lord, I pray that they would respond and what they need to deal with. Father, maybe there's somebody here that's living in sin that has this nagging, or as the Bible calls it, a besetting sin, a sin that just seems to kind of hang on to us and just kind of attack us time and time again and pull us down. And we try to get victory over it, but it seems like it just keeps coming back around over and over again, whatever that might be. Lord, I don't even want to name any sins. Just whatever that person knows or persons know, it's that one thing. I pray that they would come and bend a knee and, and confess that to you and ask for your strength and forgiveness and healing. Father, for the follower of Christ today that, that knows one of these six things is calling out to them, they need to put into practice in the coming year. I pray you'd call them, that they would come and bend a knee and respond to you. Father, also, if there's somebody here that doesn't know you as their personal Lord and Savior, that they would come. As I'll be down front here. Maybe they'll come and they'll ask me and say, how do I even know Christ? How do I get saved? And man, what a great time that would be to be able to share with them the truth of God's word. Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, may they know that they can trust in you, asking for the forgiveness of their sins, believing you died on the cross for their sins, was buried and rose again, and that by putting their faith and trust in you, they can be forgiven for all sins and granted eternal life. May they turn from their sin and turn to you, trusting you with everything. So Father, may you lead, guide, and direct in all these things. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? Which one is it? What one of the six do you need to apply today and in the coming year? Would you come? Would you bend a knee as we sing and just call out to him and say, Lord, help me to do this one thing. I'm asking for one thing that you would do, and it's this. Would you respond?